0: Comics, movies, music, video games, technology,
1: Blu-ray, television. This
2: is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The world we know is gone. No Facebook, no Twitter, no smartphones, no podcasts.
3: Everybody, welcome to the Walking Dead TV podcast episode 51. It's been a long, long time, it seems, that we've sat down together all in almost one place. This is John. This evening, I have with me Jordan from Jersey and Brad. Hello, boys. Hey, it's good to be back. Good evening, fellas. You know, with Jordan doing the uh, awesome job with the Out Now guys filling in. Um, for a, a bunch of this hiatus. It really has been a while since we've actually sat down to record an episode. And the cool part is that we finished, we got through it, and now this will be our last hiatus show before, I guess we call it what, season 2.5?
4: Yeah, we could call it that. I mean, technically, I suppose that's what it is. I can't believe it's only, it's less than a week away now from when we're recording, right?
3: Yeah, just about a week away the show returns and uh it's am- it's going to move really quick. We've six more episodes and then uh we're off for a really long time. So Is it only six, right? Yeah, the first half was seven and, and now we get six.
4: But the good thing is that season 3 is what what they say 13 episodes?
1: I think s- it's six, 16. Six, yeah, 16 episodes. That's awesomer. Yeah. So we get probably probably two eight episode pods. Uh, so prob- probably, and granted this is speculation, we probably a similar setup to this, since it seems to have worked for them, uh, but they'll just be longer. That's fantastic. I can't wait.
3: So before we get into some cool news bits and uh, a very cool interview we have set up for tonight's show, Bradley, why don't you tell the good people about our sponsor?
4: DCBService.com, Discount Comic Book Service. Uh, they've got some great specials going on. You've heard us talking about the DC reboot. Uh, Number 8 issues, all 52 number 8 issues are available, once again, in a bundle. You can get them for 50% off. That's ridiculous, but it's pretty awesome. Vertigo, uh, Walking Dead fans should really check out the Vertigo line from DC. There's some really good stuff there. Uh, there aren't any zombie books, but there's some uh, non-superhero stuff, some uh, supernatural stuff, some really, really off-the-wall Interesting things going on with uh, DC's Vertigo line. They have a bundle of their new, uh, they've got four second issues of some series that just started. You can get all four of those, uh, second issues in a bundle for 75% off. That's only, that's four four books for only three dollars, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and all new DC trade paperbacks and hardcovers related to the new 52, the new reboot are 50% off this month. And all the rest of the DC trade paperbacks are 45% off. So you really should go by dcbservice.com, check it out. Try something new and uh use our WD-8 if you've never ordered from them. And uh you will not be disappointed. We promise you. We promise you. Go to dcbservice.com and check them out. They're good people.
3: Now, Jordan, I see that issue 96 is soliciting. Um, Do you know, what's the last trade that they have solicited for? The last trade paperback
1: that has been released or been solicited?
3: Uh, Either one. Just get everybody caught up on where they're at with volumes and and stuff. The newest one that's out is number 15.
1: Um, They may have solicited 16, though. It would be about the time to do so. But if they haven't yet, it'll probably be solicited next month.
3: And seeing that issue... And what that
1: means for people who don't know comics is basically three months before something is released, uh, Diamond, which is the um, main distributor of comics in the United States... They put out a list. Well, the different, the different comic publishers put out a list, but also Diamond puts out a list of here's what's coming out in three months so that comic shops and bookstores can order, um, the books they want for their shop three months, three months in advance. So that's what we mean when you say solicited.
3: Right. And, and being that number 96 is being shopped right now, uh, we're probably close to that compendium volume two that people have been asking about for a while.
1: Uh, Yeah, that would probably end with issue 96. That's, that sounds about right. So
3: Yeah, so maybe we'll see some kind of news about that in the, in the coming months.
4: I wonder if 96 is going to be the end of a storyline. You know, all the trades have been six issues. Some of them have kind of been the end of a story. Some of them have been in the middle of a story. Uh, I guess I should have thought about it before up on my mouth because even if it's in the middle of an end of – I'm sorry, even if it's in the middle – of a storyline and not the end, it would still be an okay place to to make the compendium. I wonder if they would bother making it to issue 100 if that's when the big storyline that they've got going on, if if that
1: ends in 100. Do you think they would push it to 100 and then make the compendium? You know, I think it's more likely that, that... I I can't imagine that they would actually change the thing they've been doing for 96 issues just for issue 100 um, I'm sure issue one hundred will be there's probably a big moment, probably a big character death, something like that, but I think the actual storyline will end issue one oh two, just like they've been doing the, the six issue chunks all along.
3: Something yeah. tells me that I read news recently that ninety that, <laughs> that issue number ninety seven starts a new storyline. Well there Wait, you Which go. would add up mathematically. Right. So. so maybe that was not a dream.
4: Which one of your children read that
3: article to you? The older one. Uh, one thing I did want to bring up before we hit Jordan up for a little bit of news and, and notes and things like that. Uh, we ran a little contest recently. We got bored of not having new Walking Dead stuff to talk about. Um, I posted on Twitter that we'll be running a contest. I had found some Walking Dead figures in Toys R Us, and they had just cracked the case open. Meaning that the two black and white Rick figures with the red blood splatter, uh, which are like the variant figures. I think they're one or two per case or whatever. They're, they're rare. Uh, they were sitting right there for me. So I grabbed them and, uh, they're really cool. It's the same as the Rick TV show figure, only black and white, obviously. And, uh, he's got some red blood splatter on him, which looks really cool. So we ran a little contest on Twitter. Uh, Mary T70, our friend Mary won the contest. Uh, we did a little question. We wanted somebody to win that actually listens to the show because we have a lot of Twitter followers that are just kind of following people randomly, I think, or following friends of their followers, if that makes any sense. And, um, so we asked what states all of the hosts of our podcast are from. So a lot of people guessed correctly, but Mary guessed correctly first, which of course, New York, New Jersey, Texas, and Pennsylvania was the correct answer. So Mary got the figure, and she tweeted a picture of it when she got it. And uh, thanks for listening. And you guys got to get on the Twitter, at Podcast, And on the Facebook group, you can search Walking Dead TV Podcast on Facebook, and our page will come up. And uh, we like to run contests just for those sets of people occasionally. So uh, that's a lot of fun. We plan to do it again. And hey, I
4: I've, I've been kind of lax in getting the the current episodes up on YouTube for people that want to listen to it that way. Uh I promise you once the the show starts uh back up again, I will uh be getting those up on YouTube uh the week that they that that episode airs. So, uh I won't uh, I won't be procrastinating on those anymore.
3: That would be nice, Brad.
4: Well, thank you, John.
3: Jordan, what do you have for us for some topics of conversation?
1: Well, before we go to that, I think we're actually now joined by Mr. Jim Dietz. How are you doing, Jim?
0: I'm just swelling dandy. Thanks, guys.
1: Well, it's good to have you. Uh, so on on the news front, uh, the first one's actually kind of sad, but a side bit of news, and that is that Bill Hinsman has died. Uh, he was born in 1936, died uh, just the other day. And you may not know the name Bill Hinsman, but you've probably seen him before. He was actually the first zombie you ever see in Night of the Living Dead, the kind of creepy Frankenstein looking zombie who's in the, in the cemetery and, and kills Johnny and chases Barbara down the road. So he is the original modern zombie and he passed away. So, uh, we, we just want to give our, our respects to his family and uh, say rest in peace.
0: It's kind of funny that you mention him. They just had a fundraiser to save that chapel and that chapel cemetery where they filmed that opening scene in near the Living Dead. Uh, last week, I think they raised about $4,000.
3: Very cool. Was that enough to save it? Was it a success?
0: It was. They showed the film. They had some of the original cast members there, including Bill Cardill was also the host of Chiller Theater here in Pittsburgh, which is like the monster movie uh, Saturday afternoon thing they had here in Pittsburgh for like 20 years. And it was like a, a little mini convention right there in the uh, the same uh, cemetery where he says, they're coming to get you, Barbara.
3: Nice. Jim, did you actually have, uh, this is a nice segue, did you have some other convention news that you might want to
0: let everyone know actually, about? The news I had was that uh, um, in the latest issue of uh, Xbox Magazine, also on OM- oxmonline.com, they have exclusive art and screenshots from the Walking Dead video game coming from Telltale Games uh, that you can't see anywhere else. So that's definitely worth checking out. That's the news bit that I have.
3: Nice. I've actually asked recently on uh Facebook what the deal was with uh that Walking Dead video game. It seemed like the news was kind of hot for a while, and, and now we haven't heard anything for a bit. But I guess that news came out of, like, E3 the art or a convention is very game.
0: informed by the comic. It, it looks, it looks really cool. You have to check it out for yourself. Uh, it's like almost like a col- If, uh, they were to do like, uh, um, I don't want to say a pastel, but like an oil crayon or something on top of the kind of art you'd see in the comic. It's, uh, it's pretty cool look. I think, I think it's going to be an interesting game.
3: Very cool. And Jim, you're going to be, I guess actually the news I was talking about was, uh, you're going to be at Pittsburgh Comic Con coming up, and there's usually some great zombie stuff there with Monroeville and all that.
0: That's true. the The mall, the mall where they shot Dawn of the Original Dawn of the Dead, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, is literally right across the parking lot from where the Pittsburgh Comic Con is going to be, and I will be there representing for Walking Dead TV Podcast and the whole HHWLOD network. Uh, April 20th, 21st, and 22nd. And if you are comic book inclined, we, uh, Legion of Dudes is sponsoring the trivia contest on uh, Saturday afternoon in the, in the big ballroom, uh, the main ballroom of the convention center, giving away a lot of cool prizes to test your, uh, comic trivia knowledge. So come see us at the Pittsburgh Comic Con.
1: Very cool. And our final bit of news is, um, not really news, but it's a casting rumor. Uh, we've mentioned in passing a character called the governor who is a character from the book who anyone who's read up to that point certainly remembers this character and everything that goes on around him, and we look very much forward to seeing the character on screen. And uh, Robert Kirkman said he's definitely coming at some point, probably not until season three. The rumor was that actor John Hawks might be uh, in talks to play the character, and that actually came around because Tom Savini, uh, makeup guru, special effects guru, and an actor who was in the original Dawn of the Dead. Uh, he was in Zack and Mary at the Porno. He's been in a ton of smaller roles. And he looks a lot like the character he wanted to play, the governor. He really did. He was jockeying for the position. And according to him in an interview, he said that uh, I-, I wanted to do it. But they let me know that they're actually looking at John Hawks, a name you might not recognize. But if you see this guy, you've definitely seen him in a bunch of things. Uh, John, I know you like he's bound it down. He plays Dustin Powers on that show. Uh, on Lost, he played the character of Lennon in the final season. Um, he's been in a, a ton of movies like uh, American Gangster, The Perfect Storm. Uh, and I believe he was also on Deadwood as well. Yes, he was. He was. He played Sol Star on, on Deadwood. Uh, he's a very good actor, and Robert Kirkman was quoted as saying that John Hawks would be an excellent addition to any show. A kind of a coy answer. Now, since this story came out, Mr. Hawks' is a publicist, released a statement saying, and I want to make sure I get this exactly right here, Hawks publicist states quite plainly that, quote, John is not appearing on The Walking Dead, unquote. Uh, which is an interesting bit of wording because it's true. He's not appearing on The Walking Dead. His character is Presently. Presently. Um, but it seems like a very coy answer. So, uh, if he does join the cast, certainly a very accomplished co- uh, character actor who shares a very similar look to Uh, The governor, and would be an excellent addition, but
3: so far it's still just a rumor. Hey, Brad, do you know who he's talking about when he says, uh,
4: yeah, I'm looking at him right now and, uh, I don't think he looks anything like the governor. I think that would be a huge mistake as far as getting somebody who looks like the governor.
1: Look, look at a picture of him from Deadwood. Talking Uh, about like when he's got the gray beard. uh, Does he have the gray beard? He's got the, it's more of a mustache, kind of like a three musketeers thing. Um. This guy is a really good actor, though. He's yeah, very no, good he at, is. At, at, at kind of changing his look.
4: He is a very part. good actor. I, I do enjoy him, but I don't think he looks enough like the governor. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter if they look like the person they're trying to play. Luckily, we've gotten lucky with with this show so far. Everybody looks like, you know, the people in the comic. And I think it would be cool to have a governor who looks like that, too. But, you know, whatever.
3: Have we ever talked about the little rumor that went around that John Bernthal was attached to the new Frank Darabont show?
0: I was just going to ask that, John, because I don't think we had talked about it either. We, I know we had mentioned that Darabont was working on that uh, new show for TNT, La Noir, but I don't think we talked about Barenthal.
1: Yeah, I think that came out like a day or two after we uh, after we recorded that. Uh, yeah, the rumor is that uh, Frank Darabont wants John H- uh, John Hawks wants John Bernthal. And has possibly even signed John Bernthal to play the lead in, in, uh, LA Noir. And, and before it even comes up as a, well, he, couldn't he just do both? No. Uh, just scheduling wise, it wouldn't be able to happen. You know, sometimes actors, you know, with bit parts are able to do multiple TV shows at, at one time, but not main characters. It's, just, it's, you know, six to nine months of, um, work to film a television show. And I, I would assume yeah, and Grand, this is an assumption, but after what happened with the whole Darambot situation and uh and AMC and, and Walking Dead, they're probably not going to bend over backwards to help the guy out for a show on another network.
4: Well, this sounds like it'd be a good opportunity to have another major character death on the show.
1: You and know, it could be. I mean at this point it's still a rumor, so we don't know for sure.
3: You know, it's kind of uh my granddad used to always say, where there's smoke, there's fire. And remember those rumors about the actor that was really mad that Frank Darabont was leaving, and so they decided to kill him off? You know, it's just starting to look like there could be a little something here.
4: Well, you know, they've already they finished shooting the whole season.
3: Right, so so he could know that he's dead in the next few shows, and so he's free to make other arrangements. Right. But this is not spoiler. This is just guessing.
4: Yeah, we're just guessing. I'll be honest with you. I wouldn't mind seeing, I like Shane, you know, as a character, but I wouldn't mind seeing him die. I think it would, uh, you know, really, again, add something to the show that that's why we love the comics so much is because they take chances and they kill main characters and you just never know what to expect. I think it would be a a good thing.
3: So I think what I'll do now is uh, before we turn this over to to Jordan and, and Jim to talk about the very cool interview they had. I guess we'll just say that we're on the Tuesday schedule again from here on out. Uh, you'll, sh- you should be hearing this by Tuesday, the 7th, and then we'll be right back on the 14th and so on for the last six episodes of season two. And, uh, somewhere after that, we'll figure out what we're going to do next off season. But, uh, we want to thank everybody again that stuck around through the hiatus. Um, after season one, we kind of lost a bunch of people who, you know, you lose interest. The show's gone. You, you go on to other podcasts or other things and, and everybody came back for season two and that was great. But I'm, I'm pretty happy to say that we lost like nobody in this hiatus. Um, and I know that I have to be thankful for Jordan and Aaron and Abe and all the out now guys that helped us keep things together, uh, during this hiatus. So thanks again to, to Jordan and to those guys for sure and everybody that helped chipped in during the off season. And it's well, good to be back. We definitely have the,
4: the coolest listeners.
3: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. They don't let us get lonely. They're always hitting us up on Twitter and Facebook and telling us, you know, is it, is it time already? You know, when's the next show coming out? We can't wait for the season to begin again. So it's been a lot of fun. So we plan on continuing that. So Jordan and Jim, tell us all of the cool details before we lead into this interview.
1: Uh, Jim and I the other day got to sit down, uh, in a virtual room and interview Mr. Jonathan Mabry, who is a, a writer of quite a bit of horror fiction, including vampire books and several zombie books. So his probably most well-known one is Patient Zero, but he has a new one out called Dead of Night. Uh, we're actually going to be giving away two signed copies of the book. Not not today because we can't think of a contest yet, but it is coming. Uh, Jim got a chance to finish the book. I think he uh, – I'll let him say his piece. I think he liked it quite a bit. I've started it. I haven't gotten a chance to finish it because this week has been crazy, but I've really, really enjoyed um the about fifty to sixty pages or so that I've read so far, it's really creepy. Um, it does some very interesting things with perspective that you would not expect to see or read in a zombie book or any type of zombie fiction. And uh, I I can't wait to finish it. So I'll I'll pass it over to Jim to give to say his word on the book.
0: You can tell he's a big zombie fan. He's also done some nonfiction books about zombies. Uh, he did one called Zombie uh, S C U. Which is kind of like a, a cross between CSI and, and zombie fiction. He, he wrote an essay about Rick Grimes, actually, that we talk about in the uh, in the interview in a compilation of of essays that's coming out about Walking Dead, about how Rick Grimes is, is a you know a new kind of American hero. Um, Dead of Night. Uh, if you're into zombies, if you if you, it was a very quick read for me, and you can tell that the author, that Jonathan, really knows the zombie stuff. And it kind of gives us uh uh things that we usually don't get in a zombie movie. We get to find out how it all started, what the origin of the zombie uh outbreak is. Um it, it very much reads, I would say, and and not in a I'm not saying this in a detrimental way, like uh like a zombie movie, like a B movie. It's very quick paced, very short, bite sized chapters, a lot of action, a lot of uh um, you know, pretty well uh struck out characters, um, some really uh creepy set pieces and some really um You know, disturbing imagery as well, because, I mean, after all, it is a zombie novel. But it's a really good read, and I'm glad we got to talk to Jonathan about it. He's a really interesting guy.
3: Very cool. So, Jordan, do you want to do a little closeout thing for us here? And then we'll send everyone to your interview with Jonathan Mabry. So, until there's no
1: more room in hell and the dead walk the earth, remember, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode to discuss the return of The Walking Dead. And we cannot wait. So, enjoy the interview, and have a good week. See ya. Hey
0: everyone, welcome to the Walking Dead TV podcast, a very special edition tonight. I'm here with uh, Mr. from Jersey, Jordan. How are you doing, sir?
1: I'm doing well.
0: And we have the rare and uh, splendid opportunity this evening to talk to Mr. Jonathan Mayberry, a uh, New York Times bestselling author and multiple Bram Stoker award winner, and the author of a really uh, interesting zombie novel that I just finished this morning called Dead of Night. How are you today, sir?
2: I'm great, Jim, and I'm glad to be here.
0: I really, uh, I, I, I enjoyed Dead of Night. I, I, it was very, uh, very kinetic, very quick read for me. Tell me, what was the impetus of the book? Well, what, what was the, uh, the kick in the pants that got you to, to uh, to decide to write a zombie tale like this?
2: Well, there, actually, there's a couple of different answers to that. So I'll give you the short version of each. First, I've wanted to do a standalone zombie novel for a while and everything else I write is a series. Second, um, uh, I've always wanted to tell a zombie story from the first bite. Now, usually, when we come into a story, even if it's technically an outbreak story like *Night of the Living Dead* or *Dawn of the Dead*, we really come into the story when it's already rolling, when it's already, you know, the plague has already spread. So, I wanted to start it right from the beginning and uh, explain how the the plague got started, how it spread, and you know, to actually show the spread. So, this is my opportunity to fill in a blank that I've always, as a fan of the genre, wanted to see.
0: That was one of the things I wanted to mention to you that I really enjoyed about that. Like you say, in, in like the original Night of the Living Dead, they just kind of gloss over what caused everything, what, you know, what caused the zombies to rise from the grave. You know, they, I think they talk about, a, you know, radiation from a satellite or something, you know, in a news report off camera, you know, it just, it, that the origin of, of, you know, zombie outbreak is always kind of glossed over. So I really appreciate that about this book.
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, well, wait, can I throw one thing in on that? On that, um, you know, much of, I love I love George Romero, he, but he's not a science guy. But I'm kind of encouraged by one of his next projects. He's actually working with a scientist for his his next film. Uh, a buddy of mine named Dr. Steve Schlossman, who wrote a brilliant book called "The Zombie Autopsies." Um, Romero is making that as his next film, and uh, so it's going to have, be a science based zombie film from Romero. And Steve was inspired to do that book. Because of my nonfiction book Zombie CSU, so um, in, in a very, very indirect way, not to take anything away from Steve, it's nice that my you know, noodling into my geek science uh, has brought it right, brought it right back to George Romero. That's awesome. Yeah, it's fun.
0: That is uh, fairly fortuitous. Um, something else I noticed about Dead of Night that a lot of times we don't see in other zombie fiction. And, I mean, we, we, uh, um, you know, do the Walking Dead, uh, TV show uh, on a weekly basis, uh, on our podcast. But something that's kind of glossed over there and in a lot of other, you know, zombie stories I've seen is, uh, a zombie from the zombie's point of view. That's something you give us early on in the book and in a lot of different ways in the book. Um, I don't, I don't want to give too much away about the storyline or spoil anything, but I thought that was a really cool twist on on the genre that we really haven't seen a lot of.
2: Well, it's not too much for spoiler, because we learn about some of that right in the, right about in the opening, in the prologue, um, and I, I... Or is it the second chapter, actually? Chap- chapter it? two. Chapter two. Uh was originally the prologue. I moved it to chapter two when I caught with that <laughs> lengthy first chapter, which is one sentence long. Um, I, I really wanted to explore... Um, what that experience would be and uh, I, I found a way to do it and all uh, which also allows me to play with uh, a metaphor for um, uh, the horrors of Alzheimer's and dementia when you become detached from your own life and, and the people around you but you're still part of that life in, in a way that's that's deteriorating and I, I thought that was a horrible uh idea you know horrible concept that you know goes on in real life and I wanted to explore that in fiction but at the same time you know I I, I, in a couple of my books, I've, I've tried to give a, a slightly different view of the zombie while still remaining with the, you know, the Romero slow shuffling zombie. And even though we're afraid of them and have to fight them, uh, I don't want, I never wanted to get too far away from the fact that they were actually human beings. And the, uh, the storyline that I use in there with the Hollow Men allows me to do that. That it's, it's even a greater tragedy that these aren't just monsters. They were people. And I explore it in that in Dead of Night, and I explore it in a different way in um, my Rotten Ruin uh, teen series.
0: There was yeah, there was a really a uh, really good scene with uh, what was one of the best uh, character names I've heard in a long time, Desdemona Fox, uh, <laughs> <laughs> where she's uh, standing off in her, her trailer with all the weaponry, and she's. Trying to you know kill off these zombies, and she realizes, oh, that's the guy from the hardware store. You know, that's Arnold from up the street at the gas station. And you know, here she is having to make sure she secures headshots on these people that just a few days ago, you know, she would have waved and said hi to. Yeah, and uh, it, again, another really cool as- aspect of the zombie mythos that you exploited to to a good tension uh,
2: good here. It it would really tear pieces out of a person's soul to have to kill the uh, the folks they know. Um, and that's—I don't think that's really dealt with enough in uh, in some of the zombie fiction that's out there in, in films. Um, you see it once in a while when the beloved character gets infected and dies, you know, like like Roger in uh, uh, the original Dawn of the Dead. Um, sure. But to continue having to, sh- to to fight your way through people who you were friends with, um, would every time you got a headshot, you, you you'd be you know putting a hole in your own in your own heart, so to speak. And I wanted to, to cover that as well, because the characters, and, you know, even though the, you know, some of the characters may survive the end of the book, they're not going to survive unscathed. They're going to be marked by it forever.
0: Absolutely. Another, uh, way to use that, that the the, you know, zombie, zombification from the zombies point of view, uh, uh um, is that one scene, uh, again, spoil too much, but with Homer, uh, once he's come back to life, as it were, you know, the, the red mouth and the, uh, the black eye, and like how he just gets, I don't know. His descent into madness is also his descent into zombiehood. You know what I mean? I just thought that was a cool, cool parallel there.
2: Yeah, thanks. And it, it's it's fun with with that character because he's the one person who actually has found himself in the middle of the zombie apocalypse. It's actually brought him to where he always thought he was going to be, and uh, he's a happy camper. But he, he's also a, a damaged and sad character. There's a scene where um, a reporter, Billy Trout, is talking to to Homer's aunt. And we get to, to see some of the damage that created the monster that Homer is. I mean, he, he didn't start off that way. He was so badly abused that, that he, was, he was damaged beyond repair. You know, we, we see that tragedy as well.
1: To go back to, uh, to chapter two, because that's so early in the book, that was a fascinating chapter, of course, but also very horrifying. How do you put yourself in a mindset to write from the zombie POV like that?
2: Uh well writers are are damaged people to begin with um it's it's an interesting thing i i get asked this question a lot and you know there are some pat answers like well that's what a writer does you know we get inside the heads of each character but in, in truth we really do have to to go into some some dark places in our own own head and um but we just, we just need to leave a trail of bread breadcrumbs to get back out again you know when i when i was writing the, from the point of view of that guy who's becoming the monster you know i i just thought about pain and loss that, that i've experienced or witnessed and you allow those emotions to come through you while you're writing um so i think kurt vonnegut once said that writing is a dangerous profession and uh it it can be it it, it really if you're writing with honesty and you're writing with real passion you're, you're going to be tapping into some very dark places in your own soul and it can affect you dead of night creeped me out and also depressed me during the writing more than anything i've ever written uh, I really felt bad for the characters, and I felt horrified by their experience and i hadn't really had that experience uh with any of my other novels I mean I, not to this degree um this is the book that actually by the way uh is the only one the only thing i've ever written that gave me nightmares really yeah and i, I haven't had nightmares since I was like twelve <laughs> but um the 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 way in which Homer is supposedly executed the you know the whole purpose of 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 how they kill him. And how this this thing is created is the creepiest idea I've ever come up with, and and that one woke me up out of a out of a deep sleep when that, when that idea was born in my head.
1: Wow, and this is not the first time you've written zombies or horror in general. You've written quite a bit uh, from Patient Zero, uh, Zombie CSU, as you mentioned earlier. Even uh, one of my favorites, Marvel Zombies Return. What what sets this book apart in terms of how the zombies act or behave, or what what was the different what was different in your head, I should say, uh, other than just the, the zombie POV, when you were writing this book as opposed to some of those others?
2: Well, in Patient Zero, it's all about preventing the apocalypse. And you, you've got, you know, it's told from the point of view of, of heroes. I mean, guys who are the top of the top special ops. So you, you get the impression that that there's a real good chance they're going to win. Um, even, even though it gets down to the wire, I mean, these are the guys who, if anyone's going to win, they're going to win. Uh, Marvel Zombies Return, you know, it's superheroes. Uh, so there's, it, it's, it's played almost for, for laughs as much as it's played for, you know, the horror of, of that. Um, but in Dead of Night, it's, it's really a horror story where you don't know if the characters are going to win because none of them are particularly cut out to be a hero that, that could save the world. And in fact, just the opposite. They're, they're a bunch of, of emotionally damaged Uh, People who probably would be the last ones you put money on in an apocalypse. So, you know, there's more at risk in that kind of a story because the characters are less likely to win. And um, while I was writing, it, even though I know how my books are going to end from the beginning, uh, while I was writing it, there were some changes that went on when, you know, even I wasn't certain how this was all going to play out in the end.
1: Now, how important was it for you to use uh, small town USA, specifically small town Pennsylvania, not only with uh, you, of course, are from Pennsylvania, but also the history of zombies and, and Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh and all that area?
2: Well, I mean, let's face it. This book is a love letter to George Romero. I mean, I wrote this and dedicated it to George. Um, so, putting setting it in Pennsylvania was. A deliberate, a deliberate homage, you know, to George and his, and his films. And also, I do know the territory, and Pennsylvania's a weird state because it's very mountainous and very forested. Um, when you get outside the cities, it gets really rural really fast.
1: Oh yeah, it's damn near, yeah. uh, West Virginia at some points.
2: It, it, very much. It, it actually reminds me of West Virginia or, or the Carolinas, and it's very redneck too, which is, which is surprises a lot of people because the running joke is between, you know, you have Pittsburgh on one end of the state and Philadelphia on the other end. And between that, you have Mississippi. <laughs> um, and it's the Mississippi like the 1950s. So it's, you know, it's not uh, the most comfortable place to be if you don't share a certain ideology. Um, but it's just really, really rural. And you can you can drive five miles and feel like you are totally off the grid. And um, that's the best place for something to get out of control. Uh, when you have a huge... Um, infrastructure, like you would have in a major city, unless it, unless an outbreak happened at very specific times of the day or times of the year, most likely the infrastructure would be able to get in front of it, you know, um, even if it would be through very hard measures, you know, you have so much military near New York and so much, you have military bases all around Philadelphia and you have a lot of police. Rural Pennsylvania, you don't have all that, you know, and of course I threw a storm in there. Because st- talking to my uh, my experts, and I always I always use experts in my book, talking to the epidemiologists in modern day with the access of cell phones and and uh, social media and so on, um, it's it's less likely for a plague to go completely out of control without people being aware of it in in outlying areas. Um, so you need an X factor and a storm, as the you know like the the uh, supercell that we have going through the town in that book. Provides the backdrop so that the infrastructure that do- is available doesn't get there quite in time.
0: One of the things I noticed about the pacing of the novel, with a lot of the uh, the use of the really short chapter breaks, it almost reminded me of the way a director would use jump cuts in a film uh, to kind of you know move the action along and keep things going. That I assume that was a conscious style choice on your part, since it's kind of an homage to that kind of you know uh, kinetic zombie film in the '70s and '80s.
2: It is. And, um, there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, partly, you know, my love of film and I, I am, uh, a, a dyed in the wall film buff. I'm sitting here in my office and, and half the wall is covered with books. The other half is covered with DVDs. I love film and I study film. If there's a movie I like, I'll watch it two or three times to study how it's constructed in terms of storytelling, where the breaks are and so on. So when I sat down to write, um, or to plot out Dead of Night, I actually storyboarded it the way you would storyboard a movie. You know, I, I used little little post-it notes for each scene, and I put put them up on the walls and just rearranged them until I had the fastest possible pace. You know, the the right balance of you know I need to give information, but at the same time the story has to keep moving, moving, moving. And I, I some some of the the, um, the cuts came after I did my first draft when I went in and say, okay, well how can I shift this around? How can I essentially edit this like a film so that the pace is really fast. Um, I learned a lot about that about that visual storytelling component from writing for uh, for Marvel Comics for the last four years because uh, it's so, such a visual medium and it's it's so image driven that you write to the image rather than to the spoken dialogue and um, that helped me also you know storyboard the the uh, the book out once I had that storyboard in my head it, writing it was a piece of cake I wrote the novel in less than three months
1: Wow so is is that a writing technique you will continue to use in the future then?
2: Oh, absolutely. I've I've written four novels since then. I I write about two to three novels a year right now. And um and uh, quite a few short stories and novelettes, and I use that technique. One of the other techniques I, I use is I write the last well, for a novel, I write the last chapter first. Or in this case the last three chapters of of, of Dead and Nine I wrote first. And in a short story, I'll write the last page first, and then I'll back up and aim the story, aim aim the writing at, at the end. Because so, I know where it's going to end, and I, I can race toward it with nothing wasted.
0: I, I know we've uh, concentrated mostly on Dead or Night, but I wanted to ask you really quickly, if you don't mind, about the process you went through to uh, for the novelization of the recent uh, remake of The Wolfman. Now, uh, when you do a novelization of, of a film like that, do they, of, that uh, of that nature, do they send you the screenplay and then you work from that, or do they... Uh, send so you like dillies and, and, and you just, I mean, what is the process there?
2: The, the process is <laughs> a really funny process. This is my first uh, exposure to uh, media tie-in writing. And I was under the impression that the, the tie-in writer got to see at least a rough cut of the film and, and production stills and all that. None of that is true. Um, they, when they contacted me, they, you know, essentially what they offered me was the script, the original script. Which it doesn't even match the script of the final cut of the film. So the book and the, and the movie that was released bear very re- little resemblance to one another. I worked from David Self's original script, which by the way is a brilliant script. And, um, with, from three sketches I saw of, of, um, sets, just three. And that was all I had to work with. Um, so I, I went ahead and, and just built my novel around that and, Interestingly enough, I, I expected Universal to to be somewhat hands on because this was supposed to be a novelization of the film, but they really gave me a very free hand. You know, when we asked, well, you know, how how, how do you expect me to write a novel based on a hundred page script that has a lot of things like montage of city life in London, you know, things like that? Um, they said, well, just write a novel. So I did. I wrote it. I I backed up and I wrote a gothic novel. Did a lot of research and. You know, I, I knocked that out in seven weeks and had a blast doing it. And um, it was my first New York Times bestseller. So I was very happy with, with the reception, uh, even won an award for best novelization. So I was very, very pleased. Um, I know there are some folks out there who, uh, and not many anymore, but some folks who will just wrap paragraphs around a line in a script and call it a novel. But uh, those guys are getting less and less work. And guys who are actually you know, interested in writing a, a, a novel that they want their name on, uh, that's getting a little more common, so uh, I'm pleased to be part of that that process, even if it's just for that one movie. I don't I don't expect to novelize any other movies in the foreseeable future.
1: Sticking to the original work,
2: then original work, um, and a couple of other side projects. I'm, I'm working on something now. Um, I don't know if you guys remember the uh, video game Deadlands. Um, it was a million copy video uh, million copy seller video game that's kind of a steampunk, alt history, supernatural uh thing
0: was, I, I actually do remember that game
2: yeah well, they they did comics after that, and now they're looking to, to relaunch it as a series of novels, and they asked me to pitch a novel that would essentially reboot the entire franchise so i uh, I think they're shopping that pitch around. I wrote a pitch for them, and uh I've got some projects you know still with marvel and 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 so on, but most of my my work is is going to be based on my own weird ideas, and that's perfectly fine with me.
1: And I believe coming up next from you is a new uh, new novel in the Joe Ledger series. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I actually got two novels coming out, or two books coming out in the same month. I got uh, Assassin's Code, which is the fourth Joe Ledger novel. Um, Joe Ledger deals with um, a religious, you know, a, a very covert religious war uh, that's been going on for eight centuries, started during the Inquisition. I'm sorry, started during the uh, Crusades. And one side is using genetically engineered vampire assassins. So I had a lot of fun with that. The other book that comes out right at the same time is called V Wars, which is a shared world, uh, uh book. I wrote, I created the, the world and wrote the framing story. And then, then we got seven other writers to come in and write stories set in the same world. And it's a modern day story with, with vampires and, but genetic, uh, uh scientifically, uh, accurate vampires. Like we, we come up with a pretty good way for vampires to exist. And now there's a new race war between humans and vampires. And they both come out. That, that's V Wars uh, coming out from IDW, and, and uh, Assassin's Code comes out from Saint Martin's, both in April.
1: Now, when you, when you call it a shared world, do you mean that other people will be writing books in this in this world, or that there in the book there are multiple stories from multiple authors?
2: There are, uh, the, the book has multiple stories. Uh, there's eight writers in the book, but they're all, all the stories are set in the same world using the same circumstances. Uh, okay. this, this plague. And my story, junk, frames each of the stories. So, you know, it, it opens and closes the book and there are bits and pieces of that story scattered throughout. So it's, uh, we keep coming back to the, you know, what, what's, you know, the overarching story. And, uh, we got some great writers, Nancy Holder and Scott Nicholson and John Everson and James A. Moore, uh, Von Navarro and, and Gregory Frost all did stories for it. And boy, did they knock it out of the park. Keith the also did a story and, and, ah, uh, it's, it's great and we have dacre stoker the the grand nephew of uh, Brom stoker writing the introduction for
1: us oh very nice yeah you you've written quite a bit of both zombies and vampires do you have a preference in terms of not necessarily what you write but um you know if there's a, if there's a new zombie movie out and a new vampire movie out which one do you go to first
2: probably the zombie film because there are more zombie movies i like than vampire movies um zombies are scarier in film, uh, because vampires have been romanticized to the point that they're not as scary anymore. And I want my vampires scary. I don't,
0: I don't really <laughs> Twilight. Twilight. <clears throat> well, and they did it with, tracks, my throat uh, throat there. <laughs> you
2: know, they, they tend to do it with a lot of vampire stuff, you know, much as I love true blood. Cause you know, I'm friends with Charlene Harris. Uh, um, it's it's more of a romance, and I I like my vampires scary. So you know my favorite vampire novel of all time is Salem's Lot, and that's that's by no means a, a a romantic vampire. Charismatic, yes. Romantic, no. I've written six books on vampire folklore, so I you know I I know a lot about the subject, and I know how scary the vampires of folklore are, and very few novels ever touch on those types of vampires. They usually touch on on the The Hollywood retread, you know, the things like, you know, being afraid of the cross and not being allowed to enter unless invited. Uh, All that stuff was made up by Bram Stoker. It's not part of the folklore. Um, so I like vampires that are older, scarier and more interesting. And we do that some in V Wars. And, and I've got a vampire project that I'm pitching. My agent is about to pitch for a young adult that's uh, got some pretty scary vampires in it.
1: Now to jump back to Dead of Night here. Uh, not to give anything away about the ending at all, but, uh, would you be interested in ne- not necessarily writing a direct sequel, but writing in this, uh, in this universe again? Well, I already have, actually. Um, I have
2: a story, uh, there's an, there's an anthology called 21st Century Dead, which comes out, I believe, in June, edited by Christopher Golden. And I have a, a 12,000 word novella, um, called Jack and Jill, which is set during the events of, of Dead of Night and i i have um a couple of short stories that are kind of unofficial sequels to dead of night uh one is called uh the wind through the fence which is a, an e story that's available online and um the other i just sold to a magazine but i can't announce which magazine because they're about to do a big announcement of it but the story is called choke point and uh it 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 takes place probably about 4 hours after the end of dead of night and i uh, i i will I will be doing more short stories tied to the world. We are in discussions about a possible sequel okay or possible picking up the story with other characters. I'm not sure which uh I have a lot of ideas, and a lot of it depends on what what the publisher wants
1: now if, if somebody's never read a zombie novel before, maybe they've seen some movies, maybe they've seen Walking Dead. why should they check out a zombie novel?
2: Because it's not going to be what they think it is. Most people think zombie novels are all about the gore that it's just chomping 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 gore 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 and um they're not uh most of the, the the better zombie novels out there and i can point to a bunch you know breeders by scott brown world war z um by max brooks uh dead city by joe mckinney you know these are books that are about the experience of people in crisis and that's what good zombie fiction is it allows us to take a shared crisis that's so big it impacts everyone's lives and then we put characters in that situation, and we see what happens when when those types, when that type of circumstance um, unfolds. Because during our, our our regular lives, you know, we, we have these affected personalities. You know, we're, we're one person with our with our wife, or one person with our boss, one person with the public. You know, we have different roles we play. But you put us all in a crisis situation, all that just just gets torn away, and you see who we really are. And um, a zombie uh, apocalypse story allows us to have that kind of a dramatic setup where every character is reduced to who they actually are. So we have, you know, a real human drama unfolding. And that's what zombie stories have always really been about. That's what Romero started with, with Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, there's gore in it. There's, I mean, but if you match the gore in all of the Romero films against the opening of Saving Private Ryan, they pale in comparison. Saving Private Ryan proved that you can put gore in a film as long as the film matters. The story, you know, needs it. Schindler's List, um, you know, Holocaust films, they have tremendous, you know, gore in them. The gore is not the point. The point is the human suffering, the human experience. Well, that's what zombie stories are about. So if people would, would, would stop reacting to their preconceived notions of what zombie stories are and try one, they will probably be very impressed with the, the, the quality of storytelling that so many writers today are bringing and the, the insights into, into the human experience. And I hear this a lot, by the way, from librarians and, and reviewers and folks all across the country. I must hear it 20 times a week. People saying, you know, I read a zombie book and, and I, I just didn't want to, but they told me I had to. And I read it and wow, it made me cry or it just made me think or, you know, I, I'm not hearing anyone say it made me throw up. That, that I'm not hearing. So it, if they give it a try, they will be pleasantly surprised, and they will, you know, yeah, it's rough stuff, but, you know, there's a lot of things in the world in, in life that are rough. This is a story about real people. We just use the zombie apocalypse to be able to tell that deeper story.
1: Now, Mr. Mabry, can you tell us a little bit about Triumph of the Walking Dead?
2: Yeah, that, that's a, a, a wonderful new project that, that just came out. It's a collection of essays by writers of all kinds, including some philosophers, on, uh, The Walking Dead, the comic and the TV show. Um, it's edited by Jim Louder, and, uh, it'll, each, each of us was asked to take a subject and really, really go deep into, into, uh, ex, you know, an exploration of it. I chose to do an essay on, uh, Rick Grimes as the charismatic leader. I'm like, what are his leadership quali- qualities? Is he a leader worth following? If so, why? And, uh, I, I, I had some fun with it. I mean, there, there's, there's a little bit of, of snarky humor in there, but there's also, uh, a lot of fun with with exploring the dynamics of that character. Robert Kirkman created a marvelous character, and in the TV show, the actor and the screen the scriptwriters have taken that character in some intriguing new directions. So it's I think Rick Rhymes is a is a real landmark character that's going to be remembered for a long time. And this book, Triumph of the Living Dead, you know, has an essay on on that. Essays on all sorts of topics. It's in trade paperback. It's absolutely worth grabbing.
1: I'm sure our listeners will be very interested in that for sure. Well, we've taken up uh, more than enough of your time, Mr. Mayberry. We want to thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Uh, uh, where can people check out your books? Where can people check out you and your writing? Okay, the easiest
2: place to get me is my website, which is jonathanmayberry.com, and Mayberry is M-A-B-E-R-R-Y. So it's jonathanmayberry.com. There's links to my my Twitter, my Facebook, Goodreads, all the places you can find me online, and I am all over the place online. I'm a Uh, I love social media so I'm everywhere out there and uh, you can also uh, look up uh, um, a documentary that I was in recently on the History Channel called Zombies Uh, A Living History which I think you can download from iTunes now
1: oh very nice
2: it's Max Brooks and I and a few other guys
1: are in that and we had a lot of fun with it well thank you again for coming on we really appreciate it and all of our listeners can check out Dead of Night it is an excellent novel and uh, we're actually going to be giving away two signed copies that were provided to us by Mr. Mayberry so thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for supplying those books. And uh, we look forward to more writing from you in the future.
2: Thanks. And, I, and and really, thanks for having me on. This was great.
1: Oh, no, no, no problem. It was, it was a pleasure.